the lamb won't receive his full glory if you don't know the condition of your heart. There are people here this morning that, that think they're good enough for God. There are people here this morning that long to be closer to God and want to be closer to God. And the thing that keeps you from being closer to God is the fact that you really do not know your own heart. And when you draw back the curtain and look within your own heart and let God the Holy Spirit take you to the dark places there, then you will see the great need that you have for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That really is what this morning's message is all about. And so as we begin, let's ask that the Holy Spirit would do that work of revelation in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, our Father, this morning, as Rebecca has shared with us her story, what marvels me is, is not just the horrific inhumanities to humanity that she and her family experienced, but the incredible, marvelous grace of God that could lift someone out of that and set her clean and free, free from bitterness against her persecutors and put her on a solid rock and give her a new life. Lord, that you can take people with the darkest of hearts, the most rebellious of spirits, like we are, and you can save us, sanctify us, make us holy. That is the most incredible miracle of all. And that is the way that you, the Lamb of God, will receive the most glory. So today, Father, would you please be pleased to draw back the curtain of our own hearts so that we see them and also draw back the curtains of heaven to let us see more purely who Jesus is. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, last week we, um, we looked at a text in Mark chapter 6 where the apostles gathered around Jesus. They were coming back from their mission trip and reporting to him what they'd done and seen. Today we're looking at chapter 7, verse 1, where another group of people gather around Jesus but they're not so friendly and they're not reporting what they had seen and done, but they're there to judge and, and uh, condemn him. So would you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 7? And uh, I'd ask you if you'd like to stand with me, please stand now as we honor God's word. Mark chapter 7. And let's begin reading in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of the disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. 
As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own uh, traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is, gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. And thus you nullify the word of God by your own tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. And again, Jesus looked, called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean. By going into him, rather it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, are you so dull? Do you see, do you not see that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot make him, cannot make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and they make a man unclean. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, friends, this is not the first time that Jesus has had a delegation of Jewish leaders come from Jerusalem to scrutinize his teaching. At least once before, we've read about it in the Gospel of Mark. His popularity is growing, and the Jewish leaders wanted to keep a tight rein on current trends and teachings. And so they had gone to him to see him as a renegade rabbi that they needed to scrutinize. Keep a watchful eye on that one. They were building a case against him, actually. Already twice in Mark's gospel, they have witnessed that the disciples were not uh, living according to the tradition of the elders. They had witnessed that the disciples don't fast like the Pharisees said everybody should fast. They were witnessing that they didn't observe the Sabbath like everybody should observe the Sabbath according to them. And now in this text, they are observing that they don't wash their hands the way that everybody should wash their hands according to the traditions of the elders, they said. And so their watchful eye was on Jesus and his disciples. And so they come to Jesus, and in verse 5, they say, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now make no mistake, friends, this is not about hygiene. This is about holiness in the minds of, of of the Pharisees. The first century A.D. knew nothing about germs and bacteria. This was all about what is needed in order for someone to ascend the holy hill of God and be in the presence of God and have a right relationship with God. And so the ceremonial washings, the word washing here in verse 4 is the word baptize, The baptism of your hands in water, the the washing was so that you could be holy. You'd been out in the marketplace. You'd been among Gentiles. And now you come back to the temple or you're eating food that's going into your body and you need to be made holy. You needed to be acceptable to God. And so they had literally thousands of 
traditions, oral traditions that were handed down. They weren't written down, friends, until a, a summary of made, was made of them in the 3rd century A.D. in the Mishnah. But in the time of Jesus, it was the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, that knew them all by heart. And so you could always count on them pulling a wild card out. You know, the common man had no chance of winning that card game because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law always had the trump card. All the traditions of the elders say these were oral traditions. They held to them so vehemently because they really believed that just as the law of Moses was passed down from Moses, they believed that the oral traditions were passed down from Moses. There was a part in the Mishnah that says Moses received the oral law from Sinai, committed it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great synagogue, and they said three things. Be deliberate about judgment. Be raising many disciples and put a fence around the law. That's what they said. Put a fence around the law. And the Pharisees took license to interpret that put a fence around the law meant make more laws, make more rules. If the law said go this far, make a rule that says go that far. That's the way the Pharisees interpreted it. Their belief was that if they extended and pushed external conformity and righteousness that people could be good enough for God. People could be holy. People could come into the presence of God. And they were sadly, sadly mistaken. And so, for example, in this passage in Exodus 30, where it does teach that there is to be washing of hands of, by the priest before they enter the temple service, well, the Pharisees said, that's not just for the priests. That's for everybody. And on various occasions. And so they went beyond thinking that they could be sufficiently righteous before God in their own righteousness. Now remember, they had started out as a nation surrounded by pagan nations in the Middle East for some time. And to confirm their religious and moral integrity, they tried to be a distinct people, a people with a distinct identity. And so they reinforced all the purity codes with the oral traditions and they sought to please God this way. You need to know that the sect of the Pharisees that started before Jesus had in, in its beginning inception holy intent, though they were mistaken as to how to pursue it. And so be careful this morning as we examine the Pharisees that we do not look down our long noses for we in ourselves perhaps have our, our traditions and our ways that we also superimpose on Scripture. Let me say also about this text that Jesus is not condemning tradition here. That's not what he's saying. Traditions are part of life, family life, church life, society life. They make life rich and meaningful insofar as they are in line with God as he designed life. So there's a difference between tradition and traditionalism the Yugoslavian theologian Haroslav Pelikan said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So when traditions are allowed to eclipse the Word of God, the life of God, then we are in danger of making tradition idolatry. And God said, You shall have no other gods before me. And so let's be clear. 
that uh, traditions in and of themselves are not wrong. One author that I read describes traditions like the shell of a blue crab. The blue crab shell is, is very hard. The blue crab has to grow and, and shed its shell every so often during its lifespan. And that if the, the blue crab does not shed the shell in time and then leave itself vulnerable for some time as it grows a new shell, if it does not shed the shell at the proper time and the shell becomes too hard and rigid, it, it becomes the tomb of that little creature. You see, the crab actually dies inside the shell because it has not shed the shell to grow a new shell. Traditions can kill spiritual life. Traditions, if they're allowed to, can be rigid and unmoving and they can kill the life of God in the fellowship of a church. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit's leading is meant always to trump any kind of tradition that is man-made. And so we must be careful not to think that this only has to do with pharisaical, archaic, oral statements that were passed down for centuries. Well, if you take your green piece of paper that's in your bulletin, you'll notice that there's a sermon outline. And I'd like to begin by commenting on the fact that Jesus emphasizes both the source and the goal of traditions in this passage. And the, the way that I, I state it is that it's, it's important whose tradition we're talking about and for whom. Okay, Whose tradition is it and for whom? I want you to notice in, in this passage in Mark 7, there's a very interesting progression that takes place in the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Notice that in verse 5, Jesus, or the Pharisees, refer to these as the traditions of the elders. Okay? They're the traditions of the elders. Verse 8, notice that Jesus calls them the traditions of men. Okay? He's saying to them, very subtly, he's saying to them, don't you pull me the wild card, the elders. Don't you give me that kind of an authority. You're just talking about the traditions of men. Okay, this is man-made stuff. Then he goes on and he says in verse 9, he closer to home, he calls them your own traditions. Now it's not even just the men's traditions. Now he's saying, these are your traditions. Okay, 5, 8, 9... He's saying to them, you made this up, your rules, you made them up, you teachers of the law. And then to bring it home, verse 13, even further, Jesus, after he's given them an illustration, he says, these are your traditions, and you handed them down. Don't go quoting the elders. Don't talk about the men. You made these rules up. These are your traditions. These are man-made things. These are your ways of seeking righteousness. And don't quote yourself with authority because it's all coming from... You ever read a book that's, uh, that, that a guy quotes only himself? I mean, what kind of research would you consider that to be? As I said in a previous book. <laughs> well, that's what they're doing here. And Jesus is saying, don't go quoting... This is your stuff. I think we need to pause and think about this, though. Do we have things that we believe strongly, hold to, adamantly? And if you really pull it to the deepest root, 
it's not really scriptural. It's just kind of the way we do things. The progression has another twist to it. If you'll notice in verse 8, I want you to notice the words that Jesus uses. He says, you have let go of the commands of God. Verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. And then verse 13, he says, you have a way of nullifying the word of God. If you underline your Bible or you're in the practice of that, I'd say you should underline those three things. First of all, verse 8, you let go of. Secondly, verse 9, you set aside. And thirdly, in verse 13, you nullify. There is a severe a severity of progression here that's taking place. We're seeing a slippery slope that you'd be well to inform yourself of here, friends. Because we are also susceptible to this slippery slope. Not just the Pharisees. You see, it all starts by being influenced by others that are saying certain things and behaving certain ways and it appeals to our natural desires. So what do we do? Well, we kind of let go of certain teachings from the Bible. You know, we, we're just letting go of some of them. We're just loosening our grip, is the idea. You loosen your grip on some of these things. And then as you see that that's very gratifying, that it somehow pleases you, then you take the next step, and you actually end up kind of putting it aside now, that's, that's the next step. First, you kind of loosen your grip on it. Well, then pretty soon, you're, it's not that important. So you, you put it aside because it's very gratifying. It seems really good. It seems very self-fulfilling. So you set it aside. It means to de-esteem, to neutralize the presence of God's Word. But if you keep going down that slippery slope it will lead you to nullify the Word of God. The word, the word here means to invalidate. Invalidate this. Now this book is irrelevant. It's not just letting go of it. It's not just putting it aside. It's not even relevant to you anymore. And you rationalize and you justify and you say, well, that was for the first century or that was for that culture. Or, or Paul doesn't mean that. Because you've got your own authority, your own ideas based on your own authority, and you're saying, well, this is what I believe. Do you see the danger here? It's not one that's just for the Pharisees. Is this why we pray so little? Do we just kind of let go of prayer? Just a little bit? Because we, we've got our ways of doing ministry and and things that, that are, you know, we know how to grow a church and we know how to make disciples. I mean, we could just let go of prayer a little bit. Is it why we don't fast in North America very often like other countries, Christians in other countries fast? Is it because we've set it aside? Fasting, you know, everybody loves to eat. Is that why some people maybe stop giving the first fruits of their income to the Lord because you just kind of let go of it for a while because you're going through a tough season of life and then pretty soon you set it aside and pretty soon you think, well, you know, God loves a cheerful giver and I can't give cheerfully. Is that why some have never been baptized? You know, I'm sorry, friends, but I've I know the New Testament. 
I've studied the New Testament. There is no indication in the New Testament. There is never, ever, ever an example in the New Testament of an unbaptized follower of Jesus Christ. It doesn't exist. If you believe in Jesus, then you should be getting baptized. But maybe you just set that aside. Please don't ever hear us as leaders in the church denying you that, saying you're not ready for that. You come to us. We want to baptize you. You want to be a follower of Jesus? You get up here. You need to testify. In, in the act of baptism, you want to follow Jesus. Don't set it aside. Don't let go of it. Don't nullify the word of God. Don't think that you can, you can know better based on your own authority. Well, in verses 10 to 13, Jesus gives his accusers the example of how they nullify the word of God. He first says in verse 10, quoting Moses, he quotes the fifth commandment. He says, the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And then he quotes them, the Pharisees, in their tradition, which was called Corban. Now, Corban is a word that means offering, simply. It's a Hebrew word in offering. It means it's used 80 times in the Old Testament. It means an offering. By the time that Jesus walked the earth, it had come to refer to anything that was consecrated to God. Anything consecrated to God, and by virtue of being consecrated to God, it was forbidden for anything else. I mean, in the temple, if this pot was consecrated, Corban, then that pot could be used for the worship of God, but don't boil soup in it. And you see, the Pharisees had had legitimized Corban of this idea of, of young people with aging parents being able to take a portion of their income, a house they own, land they own, use it for their own blessing during their life, but saying, oh no, I can't, I can't, I can't give, help my parents because that's Corban. That's dedicated to, to the temple, to God. Well, of course, it was fattening the pockets of the Pharisees to do that because more stuff would come to the temple after people died. It was convenient for the young people that were not wanting to live for their parents but just for themselves. And so Jesus looks at this and he says, your human man-made tradition is nullifying the word of God. You hypocrites, he said. Pretty strong language. And so you see the, the practice of, of Corbin was self-serving, not helping God's purposes. Whose tradition? Pharisees' tradition. For whom? For the self-serving people that did not want to sacrifice for their parents. Secondly, you'll notice in your outline that not always are outward signs an inward reality. Traditions are for the obedience of faith, and they should be Outward signs of inward realities. That's what a, a good tradition is all about. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. When we baptize someone, the outward act of baptism is the sign of the inward reality that that person has surrendered their heart to Lord Jesus Christ. When we gather around the Lord's table, we, we take a cup and we take bread and, and these are outward symbols of an inward reality that I have died and I've been crucified with Christ and now the life of Jesus is who I live by. And we're doing it in remembrance of Him. 
And when parents bring a baby to one of the pastors at the front and and we hold the baby and you as a congregation stand and you begin to pray for that baby, that tradition, that act, that outward rite is got to have inward reality. In other words, the parents are saying, it is our strong and earnest intent to raise this this child in the faith. That's our, our intent. We could carry it even beyond that. We could go to Thanksgiving suppers around your table and, and the tradition that your family has. That the outward act has to have inward substance or else Jesus says, guess what he calls us if we don't? Hypocrites. He says that. And that's why in verses 6 and 7, quoting from Isaiah 29, 13, he says, he says to them, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. We just sang incredible songs this morning in worship, incredible words, lyrics. If, if we were singing them with our lips and our minds and our hearts have not been engaged, we worship God in vain. Jesus would say, you are hypocritical. And so... In the case of Corban, in these verses, a a practice was claiming to be consecrated to God, Godward, and yet it was really self-serving. So it was hypocritical. So traditions are amoral, friends. We don't decide the inherent value of a tradition. A tradition doesn't have any inherent value. A tradition has value only insofar as whose is it and who is it for? What is its end? And so there are good traditions and there are bad traditions. Paul says in Corinthians 11 verse 2, he commends them for holding on to the traditions that he passed on to them. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, stand firm and hold on to the teachings, the NIV says, but the word is tradition, same as what Jesus is saying, holding on to the traditions that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. In 2 Thessalonians 3.6, he warns the believers not to fellowship with those who do not live according to the traditions Traditions can be good. They can bring unity and order. But they can be bad, as this passage shows us. Paul says in church in Colossae, he says in chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Traditions can be deadly. They can kill. And they can be expressions of life. Finally, in the third point, I want to comment that true religion is a holiness of the hand and the heart. And as we look at verses 14 to 23, after addressing the Pharisees, Jesus turns to the crowd and he literally says, listen up, everyone. I don't want anyone to miss this. And he says, virtually a radical universal principle that would have been nothing like the common folk had heard from any of their teachers of the law. These are radical words. And they stand in stark contrast to what holiness is according to Jesus compared to what holiness was according to the teachers of the law. Now, no doubt, the Pharisees were very familiar with Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
And surely this was their proof text that they referred to when they said, you have to wash your hands. You can't ascend to the hill of the Lord unless you have clean hands and a pure heart. And they had understood this to mean all of the external conformity to things of washings when Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm referring to. Jesus was teaching that holiness and consecration was not external about what enters you, but rather internal of what is already in you. This was a stretch for the crowd. Even the disciples didn't get it. When the disciples are alone with Jesus in verse 17, he explains to them in verse 18, he has a brief lesson on human anatomy. (laughs) He says, don't you know that what you eat goes into your stomach and then out of your body? Could it be many any more clear? And then verse 20 says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It's almost as though he begins with the external act of sin and he ends with the spirit of the heart of sin underneath it. All of these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. All of this has an outward manifestation, but the heart of it, the root of it, the source of it, is right here in our hearts. Friends, you must understand that impurity, sin and evil are in our hearts, are are in our hearts before they are ever in our minds, before they are ever in our hands. Evil is in our hearts before it is ever in our heads or in our hands or in our feet or in the world around us. And though we can be influenced by the world around us, we can only be influenced by the world around us because that evil already is in our hearts. You want to say, what is the darkest place? What is the most evil place on earth? Would you say it's the drug lords? Would you say it's the terrorists? Would you say it's the child labor? Would you say it's pornography? Would you say, you can go down the list of the most evil things you could name in the world and you'd be dead wrong. The most evil thing in the world is the human heart. Your heart. Now some of you are saying, oh, yeah, I I talked to someone yesterday who said that this person did not want to submit to the Lord, did not want to come to the Lord because they said they're good enough. Oh, tell me what's good enough. Do you want to stand before the gates of heaven one day and say, I'm good enough? Tell me what your good enough looks like. Jesus said, be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's good enough. You see, the point is none of us are good enough. Nobody can be good enough. The Pharisees didn't get it. And if you and I just had the moment of self-awareness where the Holy Spirit drew back the curtain of our hearts and we were able to see down into the crevices of the darkness of the evil that is already in our hearts, we would really love Jesus. Someone said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Friends, that's why Jesus came. That's the good news. Good news isn't good unless you see the bad news. Do you see the bad news? Your heart is full of rebellion. Even as Christians, your heart can wander so far away from the Lord. 
You need Jesus constantly cleansing your heart. That's why the heart is emphasized so very much in Scripture. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, because that's the only people that are going to see God. Pure in heart. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. God says to David and Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The Lord searches every heart and understands every motive. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. In Psalm 51, after David had sinned, Jesus, David says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit. What does he say later on? He says, what is the kind of God, heart that God accepts? A broken heart and a contrite heart, O God, you will never despise. That's the kind of heart that God loves. In the first service, I pointed over here to this wall, and I was sure I was going to read Ezekiel 36, and it wasn't there anymore. <laughs> we used to have a banner in Korean and in English, Ezekiel 36, 26, where, where God says, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit in you. That's what we're all about, friends, is God in Jesus Christ came by his spirit. He enters people whose hearts are dark and, and sinful and evil, and he with a new heart, a new spirit. So as the worship team comes right now, I'm going to ask that we take an eye inward at our own hearts. Don't lose me here. Please don't leave me. Stay with me. What I'm asking you to do right now as the worship team is coming is I'm asking you to make your heart a sanctuary again. Some of you have forgotten that. Some of you have forgotten that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are a sanctuary, that you are a castle, that on the throne of your heart is the King, Jesus Christ. Some of you have forgotten it because your hearts have become playgrounds of evil. Your hearts have become cesspools for sin. Your hearts have lost that essence of, of Holy Spirit sanctuariness. And you need to come before him today. You just need to acknowledge that he's not surprised at the corruption of your heart. He has seen the wickedness and the blackness and the darkness of your heart long before you did. He sees it now. And he still welcomes you to come to his cross and say, My son died and his blood was shed to wash away all that darkness and to give you a new heart. Could you stand with us right now? And could you sing with us right now, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. Let's sing it down unto the Lord. <laughs>